Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and thank you so much for tuning in to part two of my conversation with Dr. Mary McGill. If you haven't yet listened to last week's episode, I suggest you press pause, go back, have a listen and then come back and listen to this part two of my conversation with my fascinating guest, Dr. Mary McGill, about the visibility trap sex surveillance and social media. I had another guest on in season one and she was publicly shamed in social media, a journalist, because she wrote a piece about how do we find the balance between fat shaming and encouraging people to lose weight for health benefits and whatever. But before she knew it, she was vilified globally lost a job, all the rest. And you have plenty of stories in the book about those things. One thing I always try on an individual level, knowing how these technologies operate. I mean, I think what you're describing there is various processes of dehumanization. Dehumanization, not just directed at other people, but dehumanization of yourself. Because when you fail to recognize somebody else's humanity, you're actually diminishing your own. And I think very often... We're not encouraged to have humility in these spaces. We're encouraged to go out all guns blazing. And I think that doesn't leave room for reflection. It doesn't leave room for nuance. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it kind of scares me because if history tells us anything, it is that people can do terrible things Mm. when they believe that they are right. Mm. You know, how do you know that what you're saying is correct if you can't even, on a very basic level, even privately, engage honestly with counter opinions and look at if those counter opinions are abhorrent that's going to be pretty obvious but the counter opinions are of course i'm talking about are the ones that actually will give you pause for thought Mm. um or god dare i say it make you change your mind yeah so i think that that space for reflection and thought and dialogue in theory these should be flourishing. These yeah. have never before, right? But that is not what's not what happened. And whatever our perspectives, that value, that principle, we all should be concerned about that, right? Because we know human history tells us that that shutting down and that bad faith and that, you know, kind of binary thinking when it yeah. comes to other human beings is profoundly dangerous. And when I'm thinking about the darker side of all of this, I mean, that is what I am very, very worried about, yeah. that it is stirring up forces that never quite go away and that by the way can I just say are not about us and them every human being 
has a darkness in them. And we don't like talking about that, right? Because otherwise, how could horrible things have happened are happening now and happen throughout time? You know, the human mind and the human heart are complicated things. And of course, these technologies understand that. But again, and to go back to what I said earlier on, very often, instead of operating from a place that would temper down on those instincts and boost better instincts, they seem to trade on whatever instinct is going because all attention is engagement and engagement can be created converted into a metric which in turn can be converted into cash so it doesn't matter if that engagement or attention is destroying someone's life or destroying democracy it's all the same because it all goes into the same cash pile and i think you know that is if you want to call it an experiment shall we say i think we're beginning to see now that we need to take the temperature down and to rethink and I think that, of course, involves governments and laws, but it also involves us as individuals and how yeah. we approach these spaces. And I think, you know, as I'm thinking and talking through this, which is really what I love about the podcast medium, is that I can read this book and I have questions and things that I want to talk to you about and ask you questions. But what I'm loving particularly about this chat is I'm getting ideas from talking to you. This is what social media should have been and was intended for and was for a while, you know, collaboration, Mm. ideas, exploring thoughts, thinking through why is that happening? And I do particularly like podcasting for that because it's a longer duration. You actually get to engage Mm. with people and explore and get to know people and get to discuss and, you know, back and forth. You don't always have to agree with each other, but you can kind of explore. We have multiple biases okay basically when we talk about bias people tend to think about racism and sexism etc look we have biases about ourselves we have biases about absolutely every single thing essentially all they are are the brain's heuristics so they're just shortcuts so the thinking brain uses the most energy so your brain is constantly trying to find ways to limit the use in a way to maximize the efficiency so anything that it can give to the unconscious brain to do is helpful. It frees up the conscious brain for actually doing the things that allowed us evolve, inventing stuff and engaging with people, writing books, making art, literature, all those fabulous things that make us human. It's like the reverse of evolution. That's kind of what we're at risk of happening here is because the social media, and again, I'm thinking this off the cuff sort of thing, that social media is bypassing our rational thinking brain and operating on that. So it's exposing our biases, our heuristics. And whilst they're always there, in another situation, you have a chance to slow down and think rationally. But because that keyboard is at the tip of your finger, you can go straight from that thought to that and expose those biases without realizing that they are just heuristics and that your brain can be wrong. Your brain does not see a reality. What you interpret as the reality is just that. It is your brain's interpretation based on the data it has available. Now, we all know that social media actually manipulates the data that is available to you. So you get biased data. So biased incoming data on on top of internal biases means that you're going to see a completely different reality to somebody else. So Mm -hmm. your and my reality and view of the world when it comes to gender or sexism is going to be entirely different to someone who is a sexist or a racist or whatever. And they are going to believe that they are just as right and accurate in the same way that we believe that we're right and accurate. I think perhaps that's why maybe social media has changed so rapidly recently is that Mm. 
you used to be able to see everything and that's access to data. But then Mm. social media decided it knew better and decided to just feed us stuff it knows we like. So then all you're doing is creating bigots, racists, sexists. Well, yeah, I think what social media does is distort. And I think that that distortion is often something that we're not particularly aware of because Mm. these are technologies that are frictionless to use and they feel quite organic in our hands, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen toddlers with iPads and they're just flying through. It almost seems kind of intuitive, right? I think on our behalf, there's kind of an almost unthinking presumption that what manifests on our screen simply is, is right we're not encouraged to look to behind critically. and consider yeah. yeah and to consider what is going on what are all the calculations that lead to you seeing your version of quote-unquote online reality and me seeing my version quote-unquote of online reality and of course that could be used in lots of ways some people will become visible because of it a lot a lot more people will be denied visibility online because of it it's also a convenient way for material that you would find annoying somehow making its way into your timeline and of course our minds are primed for negativity and we'll be drawn to the annoying thing you know and we'll dwell on that probably more than the most positive thing but surely that's not a good I mean if if something's been placed there just to get your attention because Mm -hmm. attention is the most important thing but it's actually annoying you and just generally you know not really what you want to see but it's capturing your attention nonetheless why do that well because it creates attention right and Mm -hmm. all attention is good attention is the metric that matters right so i think these technologies are designed to distort they are designed to amplify and amplify is another type of distortion so it can feel like we'll say um if you look for example at one of the studies that looked at the way ads on facebook were used during the 2016 presidential election Mm. what they found in one case was that the ad spend on these particular i think was pro-trump ads was about a hundred thousand dollars actually not that much really in the Mm. scale of things this misleading information but that material had been shared over 100 million times yes. on Facebook. Like, this is the issue, right? This is the amplification feeding into distortion, right? So you don't actually need that many bad actors yeah. for them yeah. to have an outsized oh, effect in these spaces. Yeah. You know, and the vast majority of social media content quite often is produced by people, a small group of people in comparison to actually the amount of people who have an account, but the small group of people are just heavily online. So yeah. they're, they're the ones producing the vast majority of the content. Yeah. But if you go to these platforms and you assume that by logging on you are getting some unfiltered version of reality or what people are thinking and feeling I mean you're getting a slice of it you're getting maybe something but you're not getting the whole picture and I think now more than ever we need a broader sense of what people are thinking or feeling and we need to be very careful about kind of falling into the distortions that social media presents because you know when you're in that space the world has been distorted you're being distorted you know you just need to just be careful with it there's so many interesting chapters. There's another one on influence, which just has incredible stuff in it. So what I write about in the book is, is something I call the Kardashian industrial complex. Oh, yeah. And it looks at the way the Kardashians have kind of um, the surveillance that was inherent to, was a reality TV where they first made their 
splash in terms of uh, the entertainment industry, but of course is inbuilt in social media. They understood and were very good at being responsive to that change. This notion of celebrity as access to all areas, which had been there to a degree in programming from the 90s with the advent of reality television. But of course, it has kicked up a number of gears now with social media. And they embrace the surveillance, right? They commodify every aspect of their lives. They let cameras in, you know, everywhere. They were prophetic in their ability to spot the earning power of something like Instagram. I mean, Instagram, when it started out, was, was purely, you know, photographs. And we didn't have the notion of influencers or selling things through Instagram. You know, the Kardashians are, are one of the people who really understood the economic power of these platforms. They've also devised lifestyles and products uh, well, the products are, you know, help you to kind of deal with the spotlight of social media. So all the makeup stuff and the underwear stuff and the detox season, all of these things. You know, this is about achieving a certain look in this hyper visual culture where women are expected to want to be seen and to want to showcase their lives on these platforms. The Kardashian industrial complex, there's not really much dissent involved. Like the assumption is that this is what smart 21st century women do. They reproduce themselves in this way. They're glossy, they're in control, they're feminine is something that they almost approach as like a brand something they do for themselves something they do for their friends almost as part of their career their whole outlook and when you talk to some young women about the Kardashians they find them hugely inspiring for that reason the fact that they are entrepreneurs and they have managed to create this empire and in the book I'm really careful not to although I'm very critical of them I do take them seriously Oh, absolutely. I think there's a real snobbery, particularly when it comes perhaps to things that are seen as feminine, even though things like the fashion and beauty industry are worth billions upon billions, just as sport is. But sports, you know, I mean, you just get these double standards everywhere, right? Yeah. So the Kardashian phenomenon it's interesting in terms of how the media has changed over the last 20 years it's fascinating in terms of how consumption has changed over the last 20 years it's fascinating in terms of how celebrity has changed over the last 20 years they have taken the visibility that is inherent to the media landscape now and they have built a brand around embracing that visibility and this idea that you can take it and you can meet it and you can make yourself wealthy from it and make yourself desirable from it and that you can be in control and of course that word quote unquote empowered and indeed for people at the very top of the food chain like the Kardashians and you know there are lots of other very very successful influencers of that mould even though there are lots of different types of different ways of being an influencer I'm talking about a very specific type of influencer yeah. in this respect and they do of course they've done incredibly well from this new marketplace. If you measure that success by how much money they've made I do think that is another cultural thing is that success does appear to be measured by how much money you have so that you can purchase the lifestyle that they have. Yeah. But in between all that, when you look at it, relationships aren't working out, you know, for them, they still make money if they go for a divorce, you know, because that's even more money coming in. But at the end of the day, I think what gets forgotten as well is aspiring to be like the Kardashians. Do you really want, you know, in a way, it must be exhausting doing what they're doing. They're on all. Well, I, I think they're very savvy. I mean, like everything that happens, the heartbreak, the divorces and everything else, yeah. everything gets absorbed into the brand and makes them even more relatable. Yeah. And yeah. this is no mean feat because these people are multi-millionaires. So um, the idea of being relatable is, but they do manage to a certain degree, make that appeal 
to the very many people who follow them. My, my real sympathy lies with the people who don't have anything like those resources, who are believing in this notion of this new economy that does work out for some people, just as it always has worked out for some people. But those people are generally, you know, the one in a million. But you have, you know, um, people who desire to be content creators or influencers without that notoriety to back them up or those kinds of resources. And they are working so hard. One young woman I interviewed for the book, she said, you know, you're your own everything. You're your own writer, PR, manager, editor, everything. And I think, again, in being snooty and making assumptions about influencers and content creators and so on, completely ignores the reality of the work, often work that is done by women because it it tends to be in a female-dominated space. This is a new marketplace that has evolved. It has none of the security and none of the benefits of previous types of employment. And the vast majority of people who are trying to make their way in it are not the Kardashians. So when the Kardashians are held up as as this kind of visibility that these are what influencers are, you're like, no, that's a particular type. Yeah. But there's a whole other world and worlds out there of people who are working so hard with very little support in, in a role that's misunderstood a lot of the time. And it's not easy. I would identify hugely with it. I wouldn't see myself as an influencer, but I am working in that gig economy and in that way. And I suppose, yes, in some ways I'm trying to have influence in a very different way. I'm not trying to influence you to buy makeup. I'm trying to influence you to take good care of your brain health and learn how to understand your brain health. And then, of course, there are ways, you know, I need to eat and make a living as well. But I understand. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN you are everything the thing and I think you pointed out in a way and while they have done incredible things they have not done these things alone and they did not start from a baseline that you and I are at they started from incredibly rich and public families Mm -hmm. so you know they will have teams of people posting this stuff and suggesting what needs to be done and that's kind of a deception that's dangerous I think there's a few things as well like that you touch on I think also in that chapter and I do think that the Kardashian KIC yeah Kardashian industrial complex yeah but you talk about Facetune and all these various devices that people now have access to to create their public filtered image which then actually results in as you said the Instagram look. So essentially you're making yourself more like others, more the same, this uniformed vision, but that has huge 
knock-on effects in terms of like imposter syndrome, you know, you're not really the person you're presenting, wishing that you looked like, you know, going to get plastic surgery to look like your face-tuned image of yourself, your self-esteem, your depression, you're not wanting to go online unless you look your best, all those things that all of us experience, but they have very real detrimental effect. But the whole point is that the solutions that are being provided are for, as you point out, problems that have been created by the solution providers. And so essentially, there's just this roundabout that you're on that actually, if we could just all step off it, they go out of business. Like we are feeding the monster and then giving the monster our money. That's what I like about books like this. And I know people hate that word empowerment, but I don't know of a good replacement. But knowledge is power. And if you understand these things, and I really do urge people to get the book, It really makes you think about how implicitly complicit you are in this terrible cycle that is really not good for women. Well, when you um, begin to look at the literature and, you know, yourself, this literature, there's still so much we don't know. Right. We're still kind of digging through this material. But what's really striking when it comes to comparison culture and fragmentation and all of these things is I suppose perhaps specificity. And what I mean by that is how we use these technologies matters and what we bring to them matters. Because not everybody is going to feel the need for validation through something like a selfie. So why are some people more prone to needing that validation? Perhaps at certain times, perhaps when they're a bit younger, perhaps when they're, you know, things are being tough or whatever the case may be. And other people can kind of take it or leave it. And I have seen this myself just in my research and we'll say talking with young women, that some people seem to have a kind of a natural ability to not that they're not affected, but they're better compartmentalizing it or been like that made me feel bad. So I'm not going to do any more of that or that made me feel bad. So I'm not going to use this platform, but I like this platform and I use it this way. So that's what I'm going to do. For some people, it seems to be that made me feel bad, but it also made me feel good. So I'm just going to keep doing it in the hope that it's going to make me feel because the feeling good is worth the bad, even though the bad is really bad and I actually don't like it at all. But that's exactly how abusive relationships work. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you're in an abusive relationship, if that abuser is constantly bad to you, you may actually have a chance Mm. of surviving. However, it's the occasional good that they do to you. I'm so sorry. And it's only because I love you. And here's this, this, this and this. And it's that good moment that keeps the female usually the female trapped in that abusive relationship. And that, yeah. that again is just understanding sure. how human behavior works and how human behavior is yeah. reinforced. It's intermittent reinforcement. Yeah. And it's one of the most yeah. difficult types of behavior to disrupt. Yes. And that does not surprise me. That does not surprise me in the least, because when you go to the literature that we have on, we'll say, savvy taken and body shame and low self-esteem and things like that. Very often the researchers will make a point of saying, you know, we found this. But one factor would be that people who present with these tendencies, they are more prone to compare themselves with others. Right. So that the technology then is tapping into that vulnerability and you get this kind of, I suppose, feedback or loop effect. Right. So while the technology might not necessarily have caused that vulnerability, it is certainly exploiting that vulnerability. Yes. And that's awful. It's awful. 
Yeah. It is awful. I mean, people, when you work in this area, they're like, does it cause, does it cause? And you're like, you know, maybe we're too fixated on cause, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe what we need to be asking, I mean, that that's such, you know, oh, it makes this happen. And you're like, oh, I don't, it's very, to say that conclusively about anything, it's a big question to ask. Yeah, you, you really can't. When it comes to the human condition and the human brain and behavior, singular causes really aren't at play they just aren't it is multiple causes but also multiple contexts so in Mm -hmm. one context something happened might lead to something detrimental in another context it won't even as a female you know we have to acknowledge the role that our brain and our body plays in terms of our behavior and our vulnerabilities knowledge is power it really is yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I wanted to do with the book and, and we'll say in reference to, you know, research on the selfie, just having that self-awareness to catch yourself. You know, there's interesting research on the impacts of mood, depending on the type of selfie practice that you engage in. So if you're taking selfies that are lighthearted, that involve food or, you know, nice sunsets or humorous, and if those are the type of selfies that you're consuming as well, they're probably not going to have a negative impact on your mood or your self-esteem. However, if you are taking the type of selfies that orientate around beauty practices where there's a high degree of self-surveillance and there is a high degree of, you know, judgment and being critical of other people's selfies as well, and you are someone who is prone to comparison, then that is probably not going to do you a whole lot of good. But if you know that, and if you know, you can be like, oh, you know, and you have the self-awareness to catch yourself in the mood where you're reaching for that, where you're looking for that. And if that's all it takes to just make you put your phone down or get a bit of distance, so that's just not so much in your head, then I mean, I would be delighted with that because these technologies have overtaken our ability to build a kind of shorthand or common sense around them when it comes to use. And a lot of the time, unless you have the good fortune to be, you know, in academia or in research or wherever the case may be, a lot of these ideas, they need to be hitting the people who they are researching. They really do. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the reasons I do what I do is that academia encourages publication in academic journals. And that's why I love that you published your PhD, but then you published this book for everyone else. And I almost feel that that actually should be almost a requirement in a way. I do feel it should be a requirement that research is made accessible. Watching yourself, watching other people, trying to figure out how should I be? How should I look? And actually you have some line, and I can't remember where you actually evoke the handmaiden. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, that's a British researcher, Alison Winch. Yeah, she talks about the girlfriend gaze being this kind of very female, very critical gaze being that the male gaze is handmade yes so she, yes and it is certainly in certain respects online in these very female spaces which instagram can tend to be it is foregrounded it's a female gaze it's other female yeah yeah and i have to say like my experience across my life and these are some of the things that i would feel uncomfortable saying and but at least i can kind of qualify myself if we do it here that in my experience females are the ones who appear more critical of other females or it can feel like that whether it's true or not but it can certainly feel like that certainly as a schoolgirl, and you do and I think that's very relevant you do speak of social media as being the schoolgirl, that place where you are trying to discover who you are and you're looking at other people and going oh do I want to be like her or oh actually everybody seems to really like her but okay I'll kind of ignore the fact that she's bitchy but I'd like to look like her or you, you know and it is that space where you are kind of vulnerable and when it comes to perfect bodies I don't think that men 
I think a new generation may be different. Those who've grown up with the internet and are subjected to porn and just all these perfect bodies. But certainly in my generation and before that, men are less critical of the female form and are excited by or aroused by the female form, even if it has cellulite or an extra few pounds, it's much more organic than the eight pack and the looking perfect. That's certainly what it was when I was there. I don't know whether it's actually changed. It could change. That's where I get fearful, but I definitely assume it impacts on women and how they feel and how they would feel undressing in front of people and all the rest. Anyway, tell us a little bit about the bodies chapter and what the social media actually does. Yes. Well, one of the things that is a big selling point for something like Instagram, if you go to its about page, is it'll tell you that, you know, you can create yourself on your self-expression, values, um, be seen, all of this good stuff that really appeals to us as human beings, because we're like, oh, yeah, I like the idea of being seen. I like the idea of creating myself. This all sounds like a lot of fun. We love to look as human beings where we're very visually driven. We love images. And so, you know, that's all to the good. Um, in practice, though, not everybody gets to be seen in the same way. And that's what the body's chapter looks at, you know. So the likes of the Kardashians will get a high degree of visibility always, even when they come very, very close to breaking the terms of service. For people who don't have that kind of following or for people who are challenging, we'll say, um, traditional understandings of the female body, just as an example, they will find themselves quite often censored. They may have their account taken away from them. They may have their images taken down. There's two fantastic examples. If you can explain the image that you're referring to with Kim Kardashian, what she was attempting to emulate. And then there's a couple then that come to mind. So there's the woman with the bikini. Yeah. Yeah. And then also there's one about, and this is where moderators come in. They're really striking stories. They really are. So last summer, Noam, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She is a very high profile um, black British body positivity activist, put up a series of images, uh, very beautiful images of herself on Instagram. And she was holding her chest with her arms, but there was no sign of the dreaded female nipple, which is not permitted on Instagram. Just so you know, for anybody who's thinking about getting their nips out on Instagram, um, Mm. if you're a woman. uh, If you're a woman, if you're a man, you can have your nipples out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this was an image I think I described in the book as kind of one of quiet self-acceptance and contemplation. It was very nicely done, aesthetically very beautiful, but it was taken down. It was taken down repeatedly over and over again. And both the blogger and the photographer who took it were just aghast, as were the people who were following what was happening online, because highly sexual images of slim Caucasian women are, are all over Instagram and they are not removed. I get them. Oh, Do, look, you know, and yeah, yeah. we all get them and you kind of look at Yeah. Yeah. So around the same time that this was playing out, Kylie Jenner had put up an image of herself with also topless with her arm across her chest. It was deliberately provocative. You know, it was a very sexualized image. Yeah. Whereas the other one was a a celebration just of, you know, um, body confidence. No, no innuendo, nothing. It's just, you know, I'm sitting here and this is how I look. This is me. I'm okay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. 
this is me. And, you know, an important image because we're not used to seeing women exactly. like that. And particularly not used to seeing women outside this, this stifling norm of skinny whiteness embracing themselves like that. So Kylie Jenner, you know, not even a thing, you know, everything else. But because this blogger had such a following, she was able to kind of draw attention to the fact that she had been, you know, her images had been taken down and it became a thing. And the newspapers in the UK picked it up. It became an international news story. And eventually... I think Instagram, um, the images were reinstated. They then changed their moderation policy to kind of add a bit of nuance around the fact that just because a woman is holding her breast does not necessarily mean that it's sexual, right? I think what it was, was that for some people who aren't aware, and that's a whole other podcast to talk about as well, is there are people who Mm. moderate content and, you know, they can be moderating violent content, obscene content, etc. Not a very nice job, but they have rules and guidelines. So the rule in this instance, the reason hers was taking down was that apparently you can embrace your breasts to hide them and to be you could describe it in so many different ways sexual provocative coquettish or actually just plain yeah abiding by the rules I can't show my nipples on Instagram the reason hers was taking down was apparently if you move your arms to hold your breasts in a way that looks like you're squeezing them that is considered sexual and of course if this woman actually is different to like it's an awful lot harder to wrap your arms around a size 42 bust or a 40 bust than it is around a 32 bust without squeezing or whatever but that was the judgment and they changed that and I think as you pointed to there that woman had a big enough following and profile to highlight that issue but most of us are unaware that we are being fed just one body type and it is white and also just as well just to say yeah and also the strength of character and the bravery because not everybody has that energy within them to fight that was taking energy out of her career you know that was taking energy out of her you know day to day to live her life and she she did get support and she had a she had you know a sizable platform and she did make change and all the rest of it but throughout the book you're constantly meeting people who have had to fight because they have found themselves at the sharp end of these technologies. That's not a situation ideally women should be finding themselves in, but they are. But I think it shows us it's back to, gosh, you know, in some ways, even across my lifespan, things have changed and moved on. And, you know, you didn't used to be able to talk publicly about your periods or anything like that. And things have moved on. But then in other ways, they've moved backwards or done full circles. But basically, as Lisa McInerney said, different perfume, same shit. Basically, it is that there is one acceptable type of female body. And there's one story in there where that really made it jump out to me. And that was someone showed a photograph of herself um, in her bikini with some of her pubes escaping ah, out, the, yes. out, the, out yes. the sides. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. that was taken down. Yeah. And Patrick Collins, oh. yeah. It was just a picture. And when I say it was her horrific reasons behind it. <laughs> when I say it was a picture of her crotch, I don't mean that in any sexual way whatsoever. It was just, she's an artist, you know, she was, so it was, it was a picture of her in actually very sensible blue knickers that has to be said, there was nothing remotely sexual about it, but it showed just along the trim of her knickers, it showed pubic hair. Which is where pubic hair resides. <laughs> I mean, shock and horror. There you go. And it caused, you know, again, it was taken down. I think her account was closed. And yet these images of bodies that are far more sexualized with far less clothing yeah. are allowed to circulate and are given yeah. such a high degree of visibility. And it's like, what is so shocking about 
pubic hair and specifically pubic hair that's on a woman's body, right? You know, there's almost like these technologies are so progressive or that's what they sell themselves as. But the cultural ideas that inform oh, them, yeah. I still have this puritanism in them. Yeah, absolutely. So like you're free to represent yourself, but actually you're only free to represent yourself within quite defined parameters that can be very tricky to interpret. There's not a whole lot of transparency until you find yourself up against them again and again in the bodies chapter you hear from women who are like and then you know this was centered and I was young so this idea again to go back to that notion of control they have control the platforms have control yeah absolutely and they will give you a degree of control but your control will never ever ever supersede theirs they will have the ultimate say I think in one way it can and that is you have control to step back and, a, well, and yes, away from absolutely. them. And yeah. that's very hard to do. And it's something that I'm going to kind of wrestle with. I suppose I have been doing it in more recent years in that I tend to limit my interaction on social media actually to my work or stuff that's relevant and then maybe my dogs mm. so it's yeah. kind of pretty innocuous because I've realized that actually it's not the right place or forum for the kind mm-hmm. of nuanced intelligent conversation yeah. and I have to say so we've been talking here about how in a way women are impacted by social media but I think also and it's a trend that I don't like either is that then It's not just men who engage in the nasty, unfiltered behavior. And I think this is problematic because I think it puts the cause of women backwards. Is women behaving in that cancel culture that refusing to have a conversation, refusing to try and find some way forward, just the finger point. They are witch hunts. And I think what has made them even worse is they're witch hunts of women by women. And that mm. seems like a particularly nasty form of witch hunting. But I do believe they are our modern day witch hunts. We have not not changed. And it's now become that place where there was the public stocks for the public shaming, etc. That's it. But at least back then, if you were publicly shamed, you could leave and go to another village. This is global. There is nowhere to go and hide from these kind of public shamings. It's pretty horrific and such a shame because it could be this incredible tool. And it is an incredible tool. And I've had lots of very positive things come out of my use of social media. I think a lot of people are aware because it's very obvious that they are being listened to and watched by the technology itself. I keep getting a picture of actually this chair that I'm sitting on. <laughs> I Google something and, and looked, no, oh, don't they have that chair, my chair back again? And every time I log on now, I'm just getting that chair kind of comes up because I clicked it and obviously didn't say no cookies or whatever. So we know that our behavior has been monitored in that way. But I don't believe that. And I think people understand that opinions and certain posts are being filtered. But I don't believe mm-hmm. that women understand that the type of women that you see in terms of body type and visual and ethnicity, I don't believe that people realize that that is being manipulated. And I think that was one of the kind of big scary bits from the book. It's not a horror story. It's a very empowering book to use that phrase again. But if you can think of another way to say that, I'm all ears. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sabina. Anyone listening? 
get the book. It's full of this fascinating stuff. It's called The Visibility Trap, Sexism, Surveillance and Social Media. And it's by Mary McGill. And she just says Mary McGill as opposed to Dr. Mary McGill or Mary McGill PhD. PhD. (laughs) The way I look at those letters that I have after my name is they're just and I think that's all they really mean is they point to the fact that actually, you know, you have studied this. You're just not randomly. And I think that's another knock on effect. It has bled into publishing. Influencers Mm -hmm. are being asked to write books because of their following, because it means sales. But that's another Mm -hmm. form of filtering that doesn't happen, that should happen, is that when Mm -hmm. you filter through, anybody is allowed to give advice or say stuff. And often that involves the purchase of, for example, say in my case, I'm looking at people advising people to buy supplements that are great for memory or there's no scientific research to say that. And yet they're Mm. allowed to kind of put that there. Anyway, you see, we could talk forever because there's just so many things and so much there. Do you have plans to write another book? Um, I would like to, yes. I know you've only just done this. Yeah, yeah. But you'd like the process. Yes, yes, I do. I would like to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think even with this, even some of the topics within this could be expanded. But I also think there's going to be more and more. And I'm sure there was more bits that you would have liked to put in that you couldn't put in in terms of, you know, page numbers, etc. So I like to finish by asking my guests to offer a tip on surviving and are thriving in life oh gosh a tip for surviving and are thriving in life hmm <laughs> i have found myself um over the last while um returning to a lot of very old things and by old i mean in terms of human history and human civilization I'm very interested in the Stoic, Stoic philosophy. And I would recommend to anybody if they, I think we live in a highly emotional age and there's nothing wrong with emotion, um, but how you deal with it is really important. And I think the Stoics offer some really interesting ways of thinking about the role of emotion in our lives. And I think over the last year, a way of thinking and a book that I have found a lot of wisdom and comfort in is a book from 1945 by a man called Albert Camus. It's called The Plague. And bear with me. Uh, yes, I am. Plague. I'm fascinated, actually. <laughs> the plague is set um, in Algiers in a town where there is an outbreak of the bubonic plague. And it follows a doctor who remains in the town to treat patients. Um, so it works really powerfully as a narrative. Mm-hmm. But Camus also developed a notion of the plague as part of his philosophy which is called absurdism right the the absurdity of life which sounds nihilistic but it's not at all and what Camus says about the plague is that plagues force us to see the fragility of life but that fragility is all around us all the time we're just really good at distracting ourselves from it and thinking that we're the ones in control when the reality is that life can end or be turned upside down at any point. And that is the metaphor of the plague. And at one stage, one of the doctor's assistants asks him, you know, how do you cope with that? Like, how, how do you cope with all this suffering? And, you know, and he just says, you know, I do my work and we go through it. And I think that's what we do as human beings. There is no way but through. So mm-hmm. you just kind of have to accept the plague as a condition of our existence and go through 
I totally hear what you're saying. And obviously it will resonate for people because we're living through another plague. But it's interesting what you say about the Stoics and emotions. You know, I think it's probably that the pendulum has swung too far one way. So there's this Stoic putting on the brave face thing. And, you know, for years we've heard about, oh, you, you're not in touch with your emotions, get in touch with your emotions. Mm. But now I think mm. it's probably swung too far the other way. And mm. it's not always good to let your emotions rule your behavior. In mm. fact, you know, in a way, emotions are the results of your thinking as well. And I suppose really, in a sense, what you're saying is just do it, just live it. You have much more control and much less control than you think. So the big stuff, an awful lot of it, we have no control over it. So you just have to live through it. But actually how you live through it and how you respond to it and what you do on a day to day level, you have huge amounts of control, huge amounts of control. Yes. And that's in how you think, how you yes. behave and even how you feel. You have much more control. Those things don't just happen your brain and you and your behavior are making some of those things happen. And so, you know, yeah. if they're not working, you can switch them up and change. That's fascinating. Yeah. I may have a little look at that book. It's always nice to get those kind of tips. But the main book to consider, folks, is The Visibility Trap. It's a fantastic read. My name is Sabina Brennan, and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Super Brain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.